Now let's turn together to 1 Timothy, the second chapter, as we continue looking together at this pastoral epistle. We come down to chapter 2, the first seven verses, and uh, you will need the text in front of you. This is expository preaching, so you will need the text in order to understand the text and to follow along. Let me remind you that the pastoral epistles are epistles that come to the, uh, toward the end of the apostle's life. Uh, he wants uh, Timothy, Timothy to remain in Ephesus because of the false doctrine that is there. In order that he might address that false teaching, he desires to pass on to Timothy and through Timothy to other faithful men the gospel of sovereign grace and the good deposit of the word of the Lord. The apostle gave his own testimony to God's grace when in verse 15 he said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And then last week we saw the charge beginning in verse 18 of the chapter 1 given to Timothy that he was to wage the good warfare. And we read of Hymenaeus and Alexander who made shipwreck of their faith and who had been excommunicated from the church. Now we come to chapter 2, and we begin with the first seven verses. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father, as we now turn to your word, we know that we are in a long, long train of churches and ministers who have preached the gospel of sovereign grace all the way back to the Lord Jesus Christ and his call of the apostles, and through Paul the apostle, Timothy, and through Timothy others, and Now, Father, we also would be faithful, and we pray that we would prize the Word and that you would take it deep within our hearts and instruct us as your people, and may we be different for having been exposed to the exposition of Scripture this morning than when we walked in the door. And if there be those among us today that are lost and undone as your people worship your name, we pray that those may be drawn to the Savior through the powerful working the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit. For these things we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first seven verses. This is the word of God. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings may be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, the Apostle Paul is addressing the church in this passage, and he is addressing the church on the importance of good order. So as we move into this section of 1 Timothy, he's going to be talking with us about about elders and their qualifications and deacons and their qualifications 
But right now, I simply want you to begin by seeing this. In today's climate, we need to start by stressing that the New Testament expects believers to belong to a local congregation. Now, that should be something that we all know and understand, but today, many have a very low view of the church and a low view of church membership, a low view of the church that simply will not square with New Testament teaching, and some are just not taught about this matter. Many think, I've come to faith in Christ, and so I'm a member of the church in its universal aspect, and that's all that really matters. But the stress of the New Testament is not on the church in its universality. The stress of the New Testament is on the church in its local manifestation, the universal church that is manifested in Corinth and in Ephesus, in Philippi, You remember the seven letters written to the churches in the book of Revelation to specific churches. And so the Apostle Paul is concerned with church and with order. Local congregations in which you have ministers that preach the word, there are ruling elders, there are deacons, there is the general office of believer, and we function together to worship the Lord and spread his gospel. I remember once a number of years ago that some of our ruling elders went to visit a man who believed that it was perfectly fine for him to retain his family at home and never take them to a local congregation. The man was ill. Some of our elders visited, talked with him, encouraged him in various ways. And um, he believed that since he was the priest of his own family, that it was never necessary for his family to be a part of a local body. And so as the elders were leaving, this man said to the elders, wait, aren't you elders going to pray for me? I said to the elders later, why didn't you say, let your elders do it? You see, this man wanted the privileges of the local church without commitment to the local church. But the New Testament will not permit that. So here he's concerned about Ephesus, in which there is false doctrine, the church that is there, and Timothy has the responsibility of opposing false doctrine and preaching the truth. And a good part of that is a concern for good order in the church. It's telling that Paul, as he begins to address this matter of good order in the church, begins with prayer, public prayer. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, he's really addressing, it seems to me, public worship. I really find it difficult to read verses 9 and 12 outside of the context of public worship. And so he's interested in prayer. Don't you find that important? That as he addresses order in the church, he begins by talking to us about prayer. So we want to see what these first verses have to say about this subject. First of all, note the kinds of prayer, the kinds of prayer. There's a connective here. First of all, then. That little connective word, that little particle, un, then, connects back to the charge that has been given to Timothy in these last verses of chapter 1. In other words, the way in which Timothy is to carry out his charge to stand against false doctrine and for the truth, in part, is through prayer and through the leading of the people in public prayer and teaching them about public prayer. It's that important. Now, this should connect with your prayer life as well, your personal prayer life, your private time before the Lord. And if this does not grip your heart, if a sermon on prayer is for you some sort of big yawn, then there is something desperately wrong. And I would ask that even at this moment you address your heart 
What more important than coming before the throne of sovereign free grace and prayer? What more important than communing with God? What more important than knowing Him and bringing our praises and our prayers and our petitions? So you notice here in verse 1 that he uses several words to unpack this idea of prayer. In chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So he uses the word supplications or entreaties. The root of that word is deomai, and it means to need. What it means to come before the Lord in prayer, first of all, is to sense my deep need of Him. To bring before Him my heart in prayer, feeling our needs at the throne of grace, the needs that only the Lord can meet. Then he uses the word prayers, which is the common word for prayer. Always associated with the idea of prayer is reverence of God and His name and His character. And perhaps since it's in a list he has in mind, making more progress in prayer, growing in prayer, becoming more consistent in prayer. And then you will see in verse 1 he uses the term intercessions or petitions. Now this term is used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's found in chapter 4, verse 5 of this book, in which we read, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The word intercession, translated intercession in this verse 1 of chapter 2, is it really doesn't quite catch it. Uh, The word really means something like converse familiarly converse intimately, so that the idea is our confident, familiar communion with the Lord in prayer. It relates to the confidence with which we are called to come because there is a blood-stained path to the throne of grace that enables us actually now to commune with God personally in prayer. And then he uses one other word in verse 1, and that is the word thanksgivings. According to Philippians 4, we're always to offer thanks. In gratitude, listen to this, in gratitude is a sure sign of a rebellious heart. True gratitude to God is a sign of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Keep your finger here and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And there in verses 1 and 2, we read something about the last days. Notice what characterizes the last days and the hearts of people in the last days. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So right there in the list is a thankless heart, ingratitude. So he says, I want you to come before the Lord. I want your congregation to understand something about prayer. I want you to understand personally about entreaties and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings. Archbishop Trench somewhere, as I recall, made the comment that thanksgiving is the only form of prayer that is going to last forever. You think about that. The time will come in which you will never have to ask God for anything. 
The time will come in which you will not have to pray for your brother and sister going through hardship. The time will come in which you will not have to pray for the church persecuted in the world. The time will come in which you will not have to pray for the lost. All will either be in heaven or in hell. But there will never be a time in which the people of God will not offer thanks. Always we will pray prayers of thanksgiving. And I would say to you, therefore, fill your heart with it now, and when you do, you are closest to heaven. This is most instructive. But my friend, if you don't have a heart for prayer, if prayer is not very meaningful to you in your private life, then this text perhaps is not, perhaps your heart's just not open to it. You know, we should teach our children that when we come into public worship, much of what is happening here when we pray in public in our forms and extemporaneous praying is that we are teaching our children how to pray. We are teaching them how to approach God. We are modeling prayer for them. And that's also why when we have these corporate prayer meetings, you should bring your small children. I don't know where we've gotten this idea in our culture that children should have fun all the time, and that if it's not fun, they won't be learning. That's nonsense. Learning is hard. And it's a wonderful thing for small children to be there and listen to the godly men and women of our congregation pray to the Lord, even if they use that horrible word that we didn't allow in our home, bored. Let them be bored. Who cares? Let them learn. They learn. Expose them to the atmosphere. So that's first what we see in this passage, the kinds of prayer that are to be offered. But now, let's ask this question of the text. For whom shall we pray? Well, we read in verse 1, all men. Look at it. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, all there does not mean every individual. That's a rare thing that you will find all anywhere in the New Testament, meaning everybody without exception. For example, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, when Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Does that mean every individual? No, certainly not. What he says here, what Paul means here, of course, is that you are to pray for all sorts of people. Not only for believers, but unbelievers. Not simply Jews, but Gentiles. For all sorts of people, you pray for the lost, especially broadly, widely, deeply, because what he is teaching us here in part is evangelistic praying, that we are to pray for the world around us and for those in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you even pray that way, my friend? You are then to pray for all men, that is, all sorts of people, all kinds of people, And then to give an example, the Apostle Paul singles out a group. I've said you're to pray for all kinds of people. Let me give you an example of that. And so he does that in verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. One of the groups then for which we are to pray, as we pray for all sorts of people, is that we are to pray for those in high positions. Now, perhaps this praying had been neglected in the church in Ephesus. Perhaps it was very difficult for Christians to pray for those in leadership. Do you remember who was on the throne when Paul wrote 1 Timothy? It's Nero. Nero is no friend of the church. Nero is no friend of God's people. But he says you're to pray for Nero. 
and for all the lesser magistrates under him. You are to pray for your governmental leaders and governmental officials. Who is on the throne? Well, Christ is on the throne. He is on the throne above Nero. Christ is the one who rules everything for the cause and sake of his church. So is this beginning to inform your prayers? Maybe you are bitter against the government. Maybe you have good reason to be concerned about policies. But are you praying? I ask you, are you praying? Now thirdly, we ask this question, why pray? That is to say, what reasons to pray? What reasons are given to us in the text for the prayers that we are to offer? And he gives us two, really. As regards the church, he says in verse 2, that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives as believers, so that we may be free to spread the gospel in the world in which we live unhindered. Someone has written, since Christians must be subject to rulers who may persecute them, prayer is necessary to overrule them. You remember that Mary feared the prayers of John Knox, she said, more than an army of 10,000 men? And he says, I want this to happen, that you may have a tranquil and quiet life as a church, so that in godliness, that is to say reverencing God, and in dignity or honorableness, a word, by the way, you find throughout the pastoral epistles, in honorableness you may conduct your lives. We should be praying that way. And so one reason to pray is so that we may have a tranquil life, so that we may spread the good news of Jesus Christ. But then as regarding God, this kind of praying agrees with God's plan for saving sinners. Verse 3, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This kind of praying agrees with God's purpose in saving sinners. This, he says, is excellent and acceptable in God's sight. So we may be tempted not to pray for presidents and kings and rulers, but in God's sight things are different and he wants us to pray. And he designs that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now by that all people, of course, once again, as we have already noted, the Apostle Paul means all sorts of people, all kinds of people. The point here is God uses prayer to bring the gospel to high and low, rich and poor, all kinds, all sorts of people. And he uses the term here, epignosis, that they may come to know him, but the word there doesn't simply mean intellectual knowledge. It's a stronger word than that that means a full knowledge, a knowledge that is full, deep, experiential. Do you have that kind of knowledge of God? What about you? Do you know him? Do you have that kind of knowledge of him? And so he says, pray for all men, men of all ranks and positions, to come to Christ, or to be used for God's glory, that we may have quiet and peaceful lives, and that others may come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's evangelistic praying. But then fourthly, I want you to notice the ground for prayer. And the ground for prayer is multifaceted. There really are four components. Here they are. The first component of the ground for prayer the basis of our praying, 
is that there is one God. Verse 5, for there is one God. That is to say, there is not a pantheon of gods. As Hendrickson says, there is not one God for this nation, one for another, one for slaves, one for free men, one for rulers, one for subjects. No, no, there is one God. One God who has revealed his will that we pray for sinners and for their salvation. As Homer Kent says, if there is one God, then he is the God of all men. And so in this pluralistic age in which we live, it is necessary for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be committed to this truth and to proclaim the truth that there is one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. That's the first ground or a portion of the ground of prayer. The second is that there is one mediator. We see this also in verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. There are not many saviors. There is only one savior. There are not many redeemers. There is only one redeemer. And so we must make him known. And he speaks of the man Christ Jesus because he is emphasizing the incarnation of our Lord, that God did something in time and space. God actually became man. And that Lord Jesus Christ who became man is one, the one and only mediator, as Hebrews tells us, the mediator of a new covenant. Now this word mediator means middleman. It was used in the ancient papyri of this era, to usually mean a businessman who was a go-between in order to arrange business deals. But it became a word that meant intermediary more broadly. Now he says, look, there is only one mediator. The ground of your prayer is the fact that there is only one Redeemer and only one Savior of sinners. E.K. Simpson says it so beautifully. The Son of Man is the head of a new race, the mediator of a new covenant, our fellow as well as God's fellow, the unique daysman who unites in his own person the dissevered fractions of humanity and re-knits the sundered, sundered hemisphere of heaven and earth. Do you remember how Job asked this question? Turn there. Job, in the ninth chapter. Job, this beleaguered man. In God's providence, suffering greatly, his friends not understanding God nor him. And in chapter 9 of Job, in the second verse, he asks this question. How can a man be in the right before God? How can a man be in the right before God? Then turning on in this chapter 9 of Job, In verses 32 and 33, he says, For God is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And Paul is saying, yes, there is. There is an arbiter who can lay his hand on you both. There is an arbiter who can bring you to trial and in his own substitution on the cross, in his shed blood, purchase you to himself. There is an arbiter 
who can answer for your need before the throne of God's judgment? Yes, there is. As Calvin says, he has extended a fraternal hand to us. So I ask you, my friend, as we look at these reasons for Christians praying, do you understand that you must have a go-between, that you must have a mediator, that the only way in which you and God can be rightly related is through what Christ himself alone does as the mediator of his people. But then there's another element to this ground for prayer. We find it in verse 6. Who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The other element of our ground of prayer is that this mediator also is the only, the one, ransom. The ransom for all, again, all sorts of sinners, all kinds of sinners. And the Apostle Paul uses the term here, anti-lutron. Lutron is the word for ransom. Adding anti means instead of. He is teaching penal substitutionary atonement. That this one mediator between God and man is the ransom for sinners, but the ransom for sinners instead of, in the place of sinners. So undoubtedly Paul the Apostle has the intrinsic value of the atonement of Christ, the cross of Jesus, its infinite value in his mind. As Spurgeon somewhere says, in Christ's finished work, I see an ocean of merit. My plummet finds no bottom. My eye discovers no shore. Or as Archbishop Layton put it, the person of Christ is of more worth than all creatures. Therefore, his life was a full ransom for the greatest offender. And so that's the ground of our praying. But it also is the message that you need to hear that your sins being stacked up infinitely before an infinitely holy God, that there is only one way in which that infinite debt could be paid for and the ledger wiped clean. And that is through this one ransom for sinners. But then also there is another element to this ground of prayer. We find it as we move along. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul says in verse 7, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. There is one God. There is one mediator. There is one ransom. And there is one gospel for Jew and Gentile. The gospel goes to all without racial or social distinctions, and God's eternal plan is achieved and accomplished. And of this, the Apostle Paul says, I am a kerux, I am a herald. A herald, a kerux, was a man who at official events, such as sporting events, would make announcements. And it was important that that man got the announcement right. The Apostle Paul says, now we preachers are heralds of the good news of Jesus Christ to sinners, the burden of whose sins are too heavy for them to bear. Lost men need to hear of the precious blood of Christ. And so ministers are heralds of this truth. So that's the ground of your praying. There's one God of all, 
There is one mediator, only one who can go between God and the sinner. There is one ransom of intrinsic infinite value, and there is only one gospel to be heralded to the church and to the world, and that is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, that's the text. But no, we're not done. (laughs) I have three questions for you. The first is a simple one. All this is about prayer. How are we to pray in public? What is the ground of praying? It should relate to your personal prayer. Here's the question. Christian, are you communing with God? Are you praying? Are you seeking the Lord? The most important thing for the minister is that he know God's word and that he know the mystery of prayer, the mystery of communing with the triune God in prayer. But it's the most important thing for you too. So I ask that question of you. But let's move on to the second question. Do you find prayer refreshing to your soul? He's teaching us about prayer. Do you find prayer refreshing to your soul? I can't live without it. It's like breathing. I can't wait until I'm in public worship so that I can pray with my brothers and sisters. I can't wait until I have time in my closet alone before the Lord. Do you find it refreshing? Let me put it another way. Do you meet with God or do you just go through the motions? No, you don't meet with God? You are just going through the motions? Let me take you by the hand and kneel with you, my friend. I said to you last week, on the basis of God's Word, that if you Christians do not saturate yourselves in the Bible, that you will be deceived by the world. Let me repeat that. If you do not saturate, and if I do not saturate my heart with the Bible... We will be deceived by the world. We will begin to think the way the world thinks. We will begin to love the things the world loves. We'll compromise doctrine, truth, standards. But now let me add this. If you and I do not spend time with God in prayer and really mean it from the heart, your heart will grow hard. Your heart will grow cold. And then you think you can come to worship and all is going to be well. Don't you see all of these things work together? The prayers that are offered in public worship, the preaching of the word, must fill your private time of prayer and your private time in the word and your private devotion and your private communion with God and flow back again into public worship. It's all of a piece. It all works together, public ministry and private time and scripture and prayer. So if you're one of those and you can say, no, I'm not really refreshed in prayer, I'm not really communing with God in prayer, maybe you need to remember that it's a blood-bought privilege, that Christ died for you to have entrance at the throne of grace. Maybe you need to remember to whom you pray that you have the privilege of communing with the transcendent creator and redeemer. Maybe you need to get on your knees and sweep out the rubbish 
that is hindering your communion with God in prayer. Maybe you are one of these people that needs to turn off the television or the Facebook and seek God in prayer because it's consuming you and influencing your thinking and feeling and attitude and affections. Maybe you need to awaken to the needs of other people around you and in the world and the church around the world that stands in need of your prayers. Your prayers. Maybe you need to repent of your backslidings. Maybe you need once again to delight in God. Maybe you need to fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. Maybe you need to be grateful again. Maybe you need to remember how much you have been forgiven. Maybe you need to remember how much you owe. Huh? Don't you think if we remembered those things, we would delight in prayer, delight in communion with God? Third question. I told you three. Third question. Do you engage in evangelistic praying? Now let me remind you that in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, we were, are told, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Where does false doctrine come from? Remember, it comes from demons. It's demonic. It comes from the evil one. Remember what we read just last week in 1 Timothy 1.18, that Timothy is to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So here it is, this battle between truth and error, right and wrong, what God has revealed, what man autonomously thinks, those who know the Lord and those for whom we are praying to come to know the Lord. Are you praying evangelistically? Or when you pray, are you on your knees and you pray for your Aunt Petunia's recent surgery? Great. Or when you're on your knees, are you praying that the Lord will bless your business? Great. But is that where you stop? Are you praying for a lost world around you? Do you travail for souls within your heart? Do you pray for your ministers that we do not spend our strength in vain? Do you pray for your missionaries that they may be blessed in the spreading of the truth? The church, sadly, today lacks unction and power in large measure because we, I'm speaking generally of the church in our country, we are not a praying people. Might it be that if we pray the Lord would use us more in converting sinners. Last week I read a very interesting interview. Joel Beakey was in Northern Ireland and he interviewed Dr. Ian R.K. Paisley. And it was a fascinating interview. And uh, toward the end of the interview, Mrs. Paisley told Dr. Beakey and some others of remarkable conversions connected with her husband's ministry. Dr. Beakey says, I'll tell you about one of them. One man hated her husband so much that he moved to Texas to get away from his constant emphasis on the need for being born again. So he was preaching there in Northern Ireland, you must be born again. The man hated him so much he moved to Texas. 
But once he was settled in Texas, Dr. Paisley's voice kept ringing in his ears. You must be born again. To the point that the man fainted under the stress. A friend found him and helped him recover. He then told his friend about his spiritual struggles. His friend then said, I have a tape you have to listen to. Imagine how shocked the poor man was to discover (laughs) the tape was by Dr. Paisley. He went home but refused to listen to it. Finally, to quiet his stormy conscience, he decided to listen to it, though he still hated the speaker. But as he listened, the Holy Spirit brought him powerfully to the cross, and he was saved. Don't you know that man was prayed for? You can be sure that man was prayed for. So I'm asking. We have in this chapter the command of the Apostle Paul, the command of the Lord through the Apostle Paul, that we are to pray evangelistically. So will you pray for sinners? Will you pray that the message will be powerful? Will you pray that the message will ring in their ears, that they can't get away from it? Will you pray that sinners will be drawn? Will you join your elders in prayer that the Lord will use this congregation, that we may see more converts this year than we've ever seen before, and disciple them in the faith? On your knees, Christians. We're just not on our knees. Some of you are. Do you ever ask the question, what if? Not what if I'd done something, but what if I do something? What if? Let's ask that question now. What if? What if we prayed? I mean really prayed. What if we sought God with all of our heart? What if we pled for our nation's leaders? What if we repented? What if we repented What if I, what if you, repented of every known sin daily? What if, rather than being desensitized to evil, what if we became watchful and careful and prayerful and holy? What if God renewed His church? What if we let out supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings? What if we prayed for all men of all ranks in all positions, unbelievers and believers, kings and potentates? What if we prayed on the basis of one God, one mediator, one ransom, one gospel to proclaim? What if we were broken in our hearts? What if we were humble in our souls? What if we were repentant? What if we were not lukewarm, but on fire for the gospel? What if we weren't compromised in our living? What if we earnestly sought the Holy Spirit's power in His church? What if we cast the seed of the gospel and did so prayerfully? What if, what if, and God's people said,